If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling? The freedom? How the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is, driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One. For the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I've always believed that the Great Fire was the end of Charles's honeymoon. It was very much the time that people's hopes of a restoration were dashed. That was Alexander Larman talking about the Great Fire of London. So I think it's fair to say that although the fire created a huge amount of damage, it also had positive consequences for the future of London. And that was Nicholas Kenyon on the aftermath of the 1666 blaze. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our fourth podcast of August 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. For this week's podcast, we're revisiting one of the best-known dates in English history. 1666, the year of the Great Fire of London. It's a subject that we tackle in the September issue of BBC History magazine, where the historical writer Alexander Larman looks at how the fire fuelled religious tensions in 17th century England. Alexander has also been speaking to our acting deputy editor, Sue Wingrove. Alex, your new book is called Restoration, The Year of the Great Fire. Uh, The fire, of course, was one of the key events of that year. But can you start by telling us what else it was about 1666 that so fascinated you? 
Well, the restoration itself had only started in 1660, and it, it starts with great excitement because Charles II coming to the throne was seen as a great change in England and a great change in what society was going to be. But within six years, there was this great dissatisfaction with what had gone on because there was, the court was seen as licentious and there was still poverty in the land. And then at the, at the end of 1664, there had been this outbreak of plague, which had been worsened dramatically throughout 1665. And at the beginning of 1666, you still had the remnants of plague. Then you had the Second Anglo-Dutch War in the middle of the year, which, which is obviously a very difficult experience because England lost. And what, what I found so fascinating about the year is you, you had plague, you had fire, you had war, but you also had a huge amount of cultural innovation. I mean, it's 1666, for instance, was the year in which Isaac Newton probably first saw an apple fall. And you had from all sectors of society experiencing this change. And I thought that if there was one year that summed up not just the Restoration, but also summed up this fascinatingly odd time in English history, it was 1666. Okay, so it was um, an interesting time to be around. Um, let's have a look now at London. Um, you mentioned the population as being about 400,000 um, and the city being second only to Paris and Europe. What would it have been like to live in the city before the fire? Well, it depended if you were rich or poor. If you were rich and you were one of the members of court at Whitehall, you have the favour of Charles, you could have had an absolutely wonderful time because you could have had property beyond your wildest dreams. I mean, if you would take the Earl of Clarendon, who was up till that point the king's closest chance, what king's closest confidant, and he was his essentially the man who's been instrumental in the restoration. Clarendon had this house, which was what is now Green Park and Piccadilly, which was absolutely enormous. So at the highest levels of, of society, London was very much a playground. But then at the lowest level of, of society, you faced poverty, you faced de desperation and despair. And of course, you know, as we have now, there's very much a sense of the haves and the have-nots. And I think that for the middle classes, such as peeps, it was probably a more interesting time because if you worked hard, if you kept in with the people such as the king, such as the court, you can make a very good living. I mean, Pepys, for instance, was a naval commissioner, and he was told before he started doing the job, you're not doing the job for the salary, you're doing the job for the opportunities that come with it. And he records in his diary every year how much more money he made and how this was a golden time for him. So I think that London presented a range of opportunities, and some people took these opportunities and did very well. Some people didn't have the opportunities because they were poor because they weren't educated, because they'd fallen out of favour with the king of a new regime or whatever else. And so it was definitely a time in which you made your own luck. Okay, so let's now turn to look at the fire, um, which broke out on the 1st of September 1666. Um, now, every school child knows it started at Pudding Lane. So my <laughs> first question is, did it really start there? And how do we know that? Well, we know that it started in the house of this man, Thomas Fariner, who was a baker. And it began, it did indeed begin in Pudding Lane, which was in the heart of the city of London. And what it was, was a Fariner, like a lot of other bakers, had these quite cramped premises in a house that was, it was basically unfit for purpose, as most of these old houses were, because they'd been essentially unchanged in 200 years. And so the wood was rotten, the houses themselves were very tightly packed. And what happened is that Fariner... I mean, it's impossible to say for certain, but I suspect he'd probably been drinking on a Saturday night. He went to bed. He hadn't put out the logs in, in the oven, probably. And so that started the fire in the house. 
and he and his family escaped, although the maid servant didn't escape, and she was the first of many fatalities. But after that, it was just a case of watching street after street after district go up in flames. Now, it, it very soon got out of control, and how long did the fire last? Well, the fire began properly on Sunday, the 2nd of September, and it lasted through till Wednesday, 5th of September. So it was four days, essentially, where it grew and grew and grew in magnitude. And did it burn itself out or did they manage to put it out? Well, it eventually burnt itself out because what happened is that there'd been a very strong wind behind it that had fanned it on. And that's why it spread so quickly and so far over London. And finally, the wind dropped and it managed to extinguish itself. I mean, there were some practical things that had been done. For instance, there had been some houses had been pulled down, so it didn't spread up the strand. I mean, it extinguished itself around the modern-day Somerset house. But it's one of those things that it could have been worse. But if it had been worse, we wouldn't have London as we know it today. So what were some of the prominent buildings that were burned down and um, which ones survived? Well, the most prominent building to have burnt down was, of course, the old St Paul's Cathedral. And it was an absolute tragedy because it was going to be remodelled anyway. And the reason why it caught on fire so badly is that there were some wooden slats against it in preparation for the first surveying. And those, of course, caught on fire and saw it burn. But then lots of buildings, I mean, significant buildings of the time burnt down. For instance, the post office burnt down. Several of, of the guilds, Mercer's Halls burnt down. The Guild Hall was damaged, but it wasn't destroyed, which is just as well for our purposes today, because a lot of the city's archives were kept in the cellar. And if those had been destroyed, we'd know virtually nothing about what happened in London and indeed in England pre-1666. And what do we know about the residents caught up in the fire? You mentioned that the the maid at the bakery was one of the first to die. Does history tell us how many people were killed? Well, this is something that I've always been quite fascinated in. And actually, it's one of the things I always wanted to address when I was writing about it. Because I grew up with this belief that, oh, it's only six or seven people who died in the Great Fire of London. And you start to look into this for a moment and you realise that's complete and utter rubbish. I mean, in a serious fire of this nature, there is no possibility that a small handful of people could have died. I mean, it's absolutely impossible to know what the death toll was. I would put it at hundreds, if not thousands. The reason why we have such sketchy records, and this goes for everything else at the time as well, is that all these people who were poor, who were illiterate, who had no means of communicating their presence in England, and those who would have been the worst affected by the fire, if they'd been burnt to death, they'd had nobody to have come forward and said, my son, my father, my wife, my mother has been killed by the fire and have it last in any public sphere. So essentially, we have all these people who would have died. They would have, and the fire would have been so hot, they would have been completely wiped from the world. I mean, there'd be no bones left, absolutely nothing. And it's, I think, one of the great historical errors to assume that the fire only destroyed buildings. I think there was immense loss of life as well. Okay, and turning to the ones that were able to escape, where do they all go and where did they stay afterwards? Well, it depends how much money you had. I mean, some people in the early days of the fire were able to pay cartmen who would take them and their goods out of London. But of course, out of London back then, I mean, going to Bethnal Green, for instance, was seen as outside of London. So it was very much a case of escaping anywhere you could. But a lot of people, and I think this is one of the most salient facts about the fire, they would have gone to bed on 
Saturday night, Sunday night. And they would have been, as I was saying earlier, sort of middle class, well-to-do people who'd established themselves, maybe they owned a shop, maybe they owned a coffee house, something like that. And their houses and their livelihoods could have been destroyed overnight. And they would have had to have headed up to a field, somewhere like Highbury Fields or something like that was one of the main areas where people congregated. And they would have been destitute. I mean, they would have had the clothes on their back and what little they could have salvaged. But they had no insurance. They had no means of building their livelihoods again. And so they were taken from the middle classes into the, the realms of the beggars. So no, no safety nets in those days then? No. So what's the modern historian's view of what caused the fire? Well, I suspect that it's a, it's a mixture of things. I mean, in the first case, it almost certainly is the time-honoured tale of Thomas Fariner and his bakery. But then there's lots of reasons why it worsened. I mean, one of the reasons is that the Lord Mayor of London, this man, Sir Thomas Bloodworth, turned up and he was summoned from his bed in the hours of Sunday night to see what was happening. And he looked on the flames because, of course, fires in London were not uncommon because of how closely packed the buildings were, because of how unsafe they were, and because there were always sparks from bakers, ironmongers, blacksmiths, whoever else. It wasn't unknown for a few houses to be burning at any given time. But this man, Bloodworth, turned up at a more serious than usual conflagration. And he saw it all, and he said, ah, a woman could piss it out. And then he went back home. And because of that, because of his negligence, the fire spread much more quickly. So... After the fire, people started looking for someone to blame and there were various targets. Um, Could you start off by telling us why and how the Catholics became um, scapegoats for the fire of London? Well, there was enormous anti-Catholic feeling in Restoration England because the Catholics were seen as the enemy. They were seen as as, as the papists. They were seen as the people who were in league with the devil. And so... They were, bla- I mean, they were blamed for the plague as well. It was very much if there's some, if some national disaster occurred, blame the Catholics. But what happened was that there was enough credence given to it by the fact that there were obviously people who were, you know, for instance, the Spanish ambassador to England, who were rejoicing in the downfall of England. And so there was very much a Catholic feeling that the fire had been a judgment from God. And in fact, there's a pamphlet essentially saying just that, that the English have been destroyed because of their own apostasy. And so you have to imagine that there was a kind of an ongoing state of war with Catholicism, which exploded at times like this, because people were looking desperately for scapegoats and someone to blame. And even though Charles said explicitly, this was not caused by the hand of man, it didn't stop people. And so people who were Catholics, people who were thought to be Catholics, were lynched. So there was a great deal of sort of mob violence as well. Um, Was there any sort of official or institutional blame um, apportioned to the Catholics? No, I mean, that's something that Charles, I mean, Charles was an intelligent man. And that's the important thing to realise about him as king. He might have been a playboy, but he was also somebody who knew exactly how to keep order in his kingdom at times like this. And what he said was, this is not something that we should blame any individual group of people for. However... Set against that, the king wasn't somebody involved in day-to-day law and order. And I suspect that a lot of the lynchings and murderings of Catholics would have been done either with a blind eye being turned or essentially because it was thought to be a good way of getting rid of somebody who's potentially undesirable. I mean, there's a man called Anthony Delora who who claims to confess that he was responsible for starting the fire. In fact, Delora wasn't even in London at the time, but it didn't matter. He was still found guilty and executed more or less straight away. 
And foreigners were also um, thought to have been suspects as well, weren't they? Particularly the French and the Dutch. Why these two nationalities in particular? I mean, you've mentioned we had been at war with the Dutch, but why why the French? Well, the French, obviously, they were a Catholic country and they were seen very much as the ancestral enemy. And despite the fact that Charles's own relations with Louis XIV were very good because the two of them were cousins, it didn't stop the fact that France, nominally at least, was at war with England because it, it was an ally of the Dutch in the Anglo-Dutch War. And also, I think there's a great sense, which I think has continued to this day, of a kind of Little England xenophobia. And anybody who wasn't English was seen as automatically suspect. And one thing to remember about the role, especially for French at court, is that you had these people who were coming to England. They were dressed very flamboyantly. They carried themselves with great airs and great dignity. So, in fact, one of the common insults of the day was to call somebody a French dog. And you have to imagine that the French were always seen as p- people who, because they were they dressed well, they ate well, they were seen as other. And I think that especially people who hadn't been exposed to this sort of thing before saw them and thought, you must be in league with the devil. Okay, now you mentioned that uh, some people felt that the fire was divine retribution, um, and not just for religious reasons, but for the court's wickedness. What what did that refer to? Well, although Charles kept most of his dealings out of the public eye at Whitehall, people had began to realise that the royal court was a place where people were living very extravagantly at a time when the poor in society had very little, where people were conducting extramarital love affairs right, left and centre, where there was homosexuality being practised not openly, but certainly with the knowledge of people high up at court. And also there are instances of bad behaviour. I mean, there are people courtiers who were running through the streets naked and doing obscene things and not being punished for it. And I think there was a general sense in London by 1666 that there was this level of bad behaviour that was going on. And of course, don't don't forget that not that long before, Charles I had claimed that he was sanctioned by the divine right of kings. And he'd explicitly made the parallels between the divine and monarchy clear. And so his son comes along without that overarching religious conviction. And so he seems to think that he can act however he wants. But for a populace who, first of all, had rejected the idea of a divine right of kings, and who had then seen Cromwell bring about a very religious, very puritanical ethos during the protectorate, it seemed like a slap in the face for this man to have rejected this religious bent. And then, of course, you have the idea that essentially... London seemed like a city that was being punished. And so these people, such as the Quakers, who had had their faiths outlawed, they were looking at what the fire represented and saying, this is essentially payback for what the king has done. The fire took place six years into Charles's uh, 25-year reign. Do you think it damaged the reputation of the king himself or of the monarchy in particular? What I've always believed is, as you say, he ruled for nearly another 20 years, but I've always believed that the Great Fire was the end of Charles's honeymoon. It was very much the time that people's hopes of a restoration were dashed. They realised that there was no possibility that he was actually going to be a genuinely different king. And I think people genuinely believed that the fire was punishment. 
Charles's behaviour during the fire was exemplary, and it's impossible. It's important to realise that he and his brother James, they were involved in firefighting. Charles probably actually literally got off the royal barge and fought the fires himself. It was very much something that he really cared about, and he, as as I was saying earlier, that uh, he was the first person to say, "You can't blame anyone for this. You can't take the Catholics because." Any other king might well have said, okay, we need a scapegoat. Let's find a group of people such as the Catholics, such as the Quakers, and persecute them. And Charles didn't do that. And it's important to realise that he clearly thought, this is a dreadful situation, but it's not a dreadful situation to make political capital out of. But certainly in terms of the reputation of the court, it was destroyed after that. And I think that if you look at the Popish plot, which occurred a decade later, in a sense, the foundation of that, of the paranoia that was that ensued when that happened, that was all laid by the events of a great fire. That was Alexander Larman. Alexander is the author of Restoration 1666 a year in Britain, which was published earlier this year by Head of Zeus. And as I mentioned before, you can read more from Alexander in the September issue of BBC History magazine, which is now on sale. This month's issue also includes articles on the Viking Great Army, Henry V, the Suez Crisis, and the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich, and plenty more. You can get hold of our September issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside of the UK, it might still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash history US. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. 
In this ad for the Mobile One brand, I have 30 seconds to remind you about your first time driving. Remember the feeling, the freedom, how the world felt bigger and smaller at the same time? Because you were in the driver's seat. The truth is driving never changed. You did. You got a job, a phone, and then a phone that was also a computer with emails that could find you anywhere. And then you were trapped. But here's the good news. It's never too late to break free. Mobile One, for the love of driving. Visit loveofdriving.us slash radio to learn more. Our second interview this week is with Nicholas Kenyon, the director of London's Barbican Centre. Nicholas is also the presenter of an upcoming BBC Radio 4 documentary entitled Cities from the Ashes, which looks at how London was rebuilt after both the Great Fire and the Second World War Blitz. I spoke to him a little while back to find out more. What kind of impact did the 1666 Great Fire have on the City of London? It had a huge impact on the City of London because virtually the whole of what was then the square mile of the city was destroyed. It was almost impossible to stop buildings being destroyed because A, they were of such vulnerable material, wood and so on, and B, because they were so close together. And so even though at one point they went as far as blowing up buildings and destroying them in order to attempt to stop the fire spreading, they didn't succeed. And it was a a good four days before it burnt itself out in the western part of the city beyond St Paul's. The fact that so many buildings and, and I presume homes were damaged, did that have any humanitarian consequences? Well, it meant that for uh, really quite a long time, people were living out of the city in temporary camps and hadn't access to normal food and services and so on. And so a lot of emergency work had to be done at that point. But there was an interesting moment where everybody wanted to rebuild immediately, but the uh, king put out a proclamation saying that they wanted to stop and take stock of how they would rebuild the city. And at that point, you get some very interesting radical schemes for remodeling the city on the lines that we're sort of familiar with from Paris of wide boulevards, uh, big squares, removing the original medieval street plan. However, it became clear that that would be very complex to achieve because of all the land ownership issues and people would have to be compensated for the loss of their own building plot. So, um, Quite soon, although we have some very interesting schemes by Christopher Wren, John Evelyn and so on that survive, it became clear that actually rebuilding on the old street plan was going to be the best way forward. But what they did was to build on the old street plan, but with new fireproof materials. And you you then uh, have this thing called the London Buildings Act, which in many people's views was one of the most satisfactory and productive pieces of building legislation to have been applied to London and ensured that a crisis exactly like this couldn't happen again. So I think it's fair to say that although the fire created a huge amount of damage, it also had positive consequences for the future of London. And so how successful would you say the post-fire reconstruction of the city was? 
extremely successful once you accepted the idea that it was the old street plan that was going to be used. If you think about that in relation to today, we are still building vast new skyscrapers and tall buildings in the city, but on the basis of this old medieval street plan. If you look at Christopher Wren's city churches, often they are squeezed into very complicated, very odd shaped sites, not what you would expect a, a handsome rectangular church to to occupy. And I think it increased our um, ingenuity and originality in dealing with how we planned the city for the future. What kind of proportion of the post-1666 London buildings actually still survive today? I wouldn't like to put a percentage on it, but there is still a significant number of buildings created in the period immediately after the fire, of which, of course, the iconic centrepiece is the new St. Paul's Cathedral that Christopher Wren created. And he created it on the site, but not exactly on the plan of the old cathedral, which burnt down in the fire. And then he and his assistants really fertile studio created the city churches, so many of which had been burnt in the fire. Uh, There are one or two survivals from earlier days uh, in places where the fire didn't quite reach. For instance, just near the Barbican, there's the uh, wonderful Priory Church of St. Bartholomew the Great by Bart's Hospital. That was not damaged uh, by the fire because the fire just extinguished itself uh, slightly to the south of there. In the programme, I know you've also looked at the impact of the Blitz in the Second World War on London. The Blitz was the second great crisis to affect the city of London. And it's fascinating. I mean, one of the reasons we wanted to do the programme was because the response there was so different from 1666 to the Blitz in the Second World War. And what happened after the Blitz was that uh, although some buildings, notably St. Paul's Cathedral in those iconic photos and images that are still very um, well known to people, uh, north of St. Paul's in the northwest area of the city, you could walk for half a mile without seeing a single standing building. And near where I'm speaking from at the Barbican Centre, there was only one standing building, which was the Whitbread Brewery, and that survived to be because in a feat of good planning, they had their own fire engines and so could put out the fires that resulted from the Blitz. So then there was a huge amount of thinking and debate. And of course, it was thinking and debate that had been fostered during the whole period of the war and the feeling of how Britain should reconstruct itself after this big crisis. And Here in the city, the conclusion was uh, a utopian new project to create a whole new residential and arts estate. And that became the Barbican Centre, not on the old street plan, consciously building over 
the old street plan and creating a new way of living so that 4,000, 5,000 people uh, as residents could be gathered in one iconic building surrounding uh, a rather wonderful lake, open spaces and so on, with an art centre at its core to demonstrate the uh, vision of living with culture at the centre. What kind of challenges did the post-war reconstructors of London face? I'm thinking particularly of, say, financial restraint. Oh, it was absolutely vast. And uh, just looking at the Barbican Centre for a moment, it certainly took at least 10 years to think out what to do, uh, 10 years to plan and acquire the necessary finance, and then another 10 years to build it. So uh, thinking from the end of the war, it wasn't until 1982 that the Barbican Arts Centre finally opened. And I think you would have to say, uh, particularly on the question of finance, that it was able to be achieved because the city corporation, which is the uh, unique governance model of the square mile, um, having decided to do it, and it only decided very, very narrowly to do it, decided to do it very well. And this is one of the things about the city that if it decides to do a project, whether it's St Paul's Cathedral or um, the Lloyd's Building or a modern skyscraper or the Barbican Centre, it wants the very best in terms of quality and excellence. And so in the end, no expense was spared. In London and also in other parts of Britain that were bombed in the Blitz, some of the post-war architecture has, has actually got quite a bad reputation for the, the look and style of it. Do you, do you think that's fair? I think that's fair and I think it's true and I think it has a lot to do with the availability of resources. As I say, the, the, the Barbican was built to a very high specification. Elsewhere in the country where there weren't the resources, the same ideas of, for instance, separating cars and people, uh, building tower blocks, were put into effect with a far lower specification and far more stretched financial resources. And it was also a time when the architectural concept of modernism was in the ascendant, and many people would say it didn't really relate closely enough to to the way that people led their lives. You also get in the post-war period, the idea of not only of separating cars and people, but also making cities very dependent on the car and enabling its movements around the place. And so inevitably cutting off communication routes where people would naturally walk or find open spaces to to gather and, and congregate. So there were a huge amount of planning issues in the whole area of post-war reconstruction, which we are now coming to grips with in many areas, changing our minds about. But you can't argue that it was an extremely characterful period in Britain's architecture. Do you see any lessons for London today in what happened after both the Great Fire and the Blitz? Yes, I I think they both raise the issue of what is the right 
combination of qualities that you need in a city in order for it to work for everybody. They raise the issues of how do you attract people to live in the city, which is more and more becoming the preferred option for people, and what sort of architectural qualities do you need in order to make city living bearable. And for instance, there's one very, very clear choice between building upwards tower blocks or even not as high as mega tower blocks, but building up eight or 10 floors, having apartments of the sort that are the norm in most continental uh, capital cities, but have never really been the norm here because of our attachment to front doors and individual gardens and garages and so on. And I think the idea that you can go up and therefore create more public space on the ground, which is open green space, walking routes, cycling routes, and so on, is important. You've then got the the big alternative, which is to spread outwards. And that was very popular at one point, the thought that with increased transport links, you could go out to the suburbs. And because access was relatively quick, um, you could then create a piece of space for everybody individually out there in, in the suburbs. I think the tide is swimming against that at the moment because what we are finding, particularly with the incredible growth of, of London, is how challenging commuting and, and travelling into the city is. And as people get driven further and further out by the cost of property, uh, that is going to become a more difficult problem as we go forward. But um, with imaginative solutions, inner city living, if it is well planned and well thought out, is a very viable alternative. I suppose in these two instances, the Fire of London and the Blitz, you had, for, for very tra- tragic reasons, you had a really big opportunity to reshape a city. Is it a lot more difficult to do that when you don't have something of that, that kind of level of shock that gives you the opportunity to rebuild things? Well, that's a very interesting way of looking at it because, of course, these two crises did present tremendous opportunities and we have learnt from them. But I think one of the things that we have learnt is that a judicious mixture of planning and free enterprise of um, restrictions, but also the freedom of the market to to develop new ideas. These things can be done and they are really necessary. And for instance, we hear in the programme from visionary city thinkers like Lord Richard Rogers, who uh, worked for the previous mayor of London and had a big influence on the way that London has developed. I, I think London is always going to be a slightly chaotic, uh, a slightly unplanned city, but there are always things that you can do to improve the situation by interventions, whether it's the sort of open space that's now being created in the development at King's Cross, at Granary Square, whether it's something as simple as the, well, it wasn't simple at the time, as the pedestrianisation of the north side of Trafalgar Square outside the National Gallery, which has really improved the 
urban realm around there, or what we are trying to do in the city of London now, which is to create a cultural hub around the Barbican, the Museum of London, the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, and to bring those organisations together in a way that can improve the experience for the public. That was Nicholas Kenyon. Cities from the Ashes airs next Tuesday, the 30th of August, at 8pm on BBC Radio 4. And now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma Mason. Historians may have completely misunderstood William the Conqueror because the cheerful and generous nature many chroniclers ascribed to him in fact belonged to someone else. This is the claim put forward by historian Mark Morris, who discovered that praiseworthy adjectives thought to have been used to describe the Battle of Hastings' victor were in fact directed at an abbot who had recently died. The positive qualities were recorded in an 11th century Latin text written after the king's funeral in 1087. Morris's new translation of the document shows the praise was not about William, but Abbot Richard of Verdun. The chronicle has been in print since the 19th century, but only in the original Latin, which Morris describes as flowery Latin, not the normal administrative Latin that most medieval historians, like me, can cope with. Morris made the discovery while researching his forthcoming book on William of Normandy. He told the observer, There's no good evidence for a genial, jolly, jovial William the Conqueror. It's clear from looking at academic biographies written in the past 50 years that it has always been mistranslated. In other news, a unique album of mugshots and signatures of Nazi war criminals compiled by an Allied intelligence officer whose job it was to interrogate them is to go on sale next month. The album, titled Nazi Cavalcade, contains scores of photographs and 230 individual signatures from high-ranking military officers, political leaders, diplomats and heads of institutions like banks who stood trial and helped give evidence during the war crime trials in Nuremberg in 1946. Part of the purpose of the questioning was to get them to provide an authentic signature. This could be compared with the handwriting of Nazi officials who signed off orders for wartime atrocities. The album helped bring scores of Nazi war criminals to justice. The album is to be sold in Britain by a private dealer. Matthew Treadwin of C&T Auctioneers of Ashford, Kent, told The Telegraph the signatures were, quote, quite possibly the last signatures some of these people gave before they were hanged. Meanwhile, ancient Egyptian texts written on rock faces and papyri are being brought together for the general reader for the first time. Cambridge academic Toby Wilkinson has translated the hieroglyphic writings into modern English because he feels the public has been missing out on a rich literary tradition. Unlike ancient Greek and Roman texts, which are widely accessible in modern editions, until now few people beyond specialists have been able to read those from ancient Egypt, many of them inaccessible within tombs. Filled with metaphor and symbolism, hieroglyphs reveal life through the eyes of ancient Egyptians, Wilkinson told The Guardian. Penguin Classics, which has this week released the book entitled Writings from Ancient Egypt, described it as a groundbreaking publication because, quote, these writings have never before been published together in an accessible collection. Just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our History Weekend events, taking place in Winchester from the 7th to 9th of October and York from the 18th to 20th of November. Some talks are now beginning to sell out, 
So do check out the website historyweekend.com to book your tickets while they're still available. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do tune in next time when we'll be talking about the Duke of Wellington and the aftermath of the First World War. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.